You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. I'm Adam Rusman, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. Welcome to the Inside Intercom podcast, a show all about learning how to build better products and businesses through conversations with leaders in the world of design, product management, marketing, and more. If you're a regular reader of our Inside Intercom blog, you know we spend a lot of time writing about user onboarding. It's literally the only thing all of your customers are going to do in your product, and if you fail to set those customers up for success, frankly, they'll fail to stick around. We've onboarded tens of thousands of customers to Intercom and just published a brand new book, Intercom on Onboarding, that features our most valuable lessons learned along the way. You can learn more about that at intercom.com books. To go even deeper on the topic, today's episode features an interview between Intercom on Onboarding's editor, our own Jeffrey Keating, and Samuel Hulick. Samuel is the authority on user onboarding, whether through his own book, The Elements of User Onboarding, or his detailed witty teardowns you can find at useronboard.com of products we use every day like Snapchat and Slack, to the Hillary 2016 campaign app, he's been central in bringing user onboarding front and center for our modern software products. The conversation digs into why your onboarding must concentrate on the user over your own business, the importance of revisiting your onboarding over time, where we can find onboarding inspiration outside of the software world, and much more. So let's hand things over to Jeffrey, who's in the studio with Samuel Hulick. Samuel, welcome to the show. We've been a huge fan of yours at Intercom for a long time, through your writing, through your onboarding teardowns at useronboard.com. Could you give us an insight into how you got started into your career and why you began to hone in on onboarding? Sure. So um, I started off my career as a user experience designer about roughly a decade ago. And what drew me to that was looking at uh, software as something that can provide superpowers to people where you have these capabilities that you wouldn't have otherwise and what a magical kind of thing that is. And also wanting to really respect people's time and their energy and attention and uh, direct it in a way that's the most to their benefit as possible. And uh, being in the user experience design field, one area that I noticed could really use a lot more attention on our end is the user onboarding process or the you know the the process of getting people transitioned from being unaware of what your product can provide to them to them taking on the the fullest capabilities that your product does provide so even just to go down to kind of like brass tacks on this like so what do you actually define as user onboarding because i know your definition is maybe slightly different to what a lot of others would have Sure. So I think that a lot of times when you ask people what user onboarding is, they'll say that it's something like a tooltip tour or the introductory material or some help documents or something along those lines. And while those can be beneficial for getting people up to speed with your product, I really look at it less from the standpoint of uh, dragging people by the ear through activating features or having them click next 20 times in a tooltip tour and more along the lines of getting people up to speed with whatever they're the better version of themselves that they're hoping they will become with your product in their life and more reliably guiding more people toward that up and running very kind of cool and very capable state. So however that happens is, is kind of immaterial to me. It's much more a question of, or less of a question of getting people from A to B in your app and more from A to B in their lives. I suppose if, if onboarding kind of focuses less on kind of like activation and things like exclusively on signing up, 
What's the best way then to drag those users back and to make sure they keep coming back and back again? Yeah, yeah. The the user onboarding experience. I mean, it is really crucial to have a great first run experience and sign up experience activation. All of those, um, you know, the first five minutes in your product are really, really important for capitalizing on the attention that people are going to be providing you. Because uh, if you really don't make that great first impression, it's very unlikely that they will come back. Uh, nearly as willing as they were before. So wanting to really nail that is really paramount. But of course, it's also a matter of building up habits in people's lives and getting them all the way to as successful as they possibly can be. And that is probably by definition not going to happen in one single sitting or within a couple minutes. And by definition, that that would also require getting people to come back into your product. And a lot of the onboarding-centric product design patterns like tooltip tours or things like that that I've been mentioning uh, can't get people back into your product because they are in your product to begin with. And so you need to go find people where they are and entice them back in. And the two major ones that I've seen to to do that are notifications within like a mobile app or something along those lines, and also especially lifecycle emails. So many of our listeners are from very, very early stage companies and they may just have launched uh, V1 of their onboarding experience. And I think probably the biggest mistake they can make is to design an onboarding experience, launch it, and then leave it alone while they kind of get on with more important things. But how often should companies be revisiting their onboarding? Yeah, a lot of times I, you know, will speak with companies and they'll be excited to say like, oh, in in Q2, we're going to launch our onboarding. Um, And it's always a little bit something that I kind of wince at, actually, rather than get really excited about, because it sounds like they're treating it like the launch of a a discrete feature or um, something along those lines where you're not necessarily looking at it as an evolving element of product market fit and more as a discrete chunk of code or some, you know, website doodads to to tack on and, and then kind of brush your hands off and, and walk away from. And in the same way that you wouldn't launch customer support and then be done with it, uh, you, you want to have your user onboarding, especially if you're not looking at it, at it as the the definition of, you know, some pixels that show up on a screen, but rather rather the process of helping people become successful when adopting your product, um, look at that as something that as your market evolves and as your product evolves and as your customer base evolves, having that transition process evolve along with it. So to my mind, it's it's something that um, ideally involves constant iteration and evolution. I think onboarding probably in one way or the other has been around for, I would say, maybe hundreds of years. Do you find yourself analyzing onboarding experiences outside of software in real life, um, even in the grocery store, for example? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I would say much longer than than uh, hundreds of years, probably. Um, anytime, you know, in the, in the software sense, a lot of times what you're creating when you're creating software is less of a tool and more of an, an environment for accomplishment or an environment for activity. And anytime you design an environment, it's going to have a natural uh, getting started process where people are entering into it and figuring out what it is that they need to be doing and how. And so um, one of the best examples that I use that's kind of like IRL onboarding is um, a lot of times I will look to get out of town and I'll rent a cabin on Airbnb. And when I arrive, maybe I'll have service for my phone or maybe not. Uh, How easy is it to find where the key is or the key code is located? If I do get that in, can I find how to turn on the lights and the heat? Do I know how to access the internet? Is that very clear? You know, if it comes with like a sauna, do I know how to turn that on or not? And 
And a lot of times you'll find that the hosts have clearly anticipated all of the questions that someone might have upon entering the environment of their house and everything is laid out right where someone would most intuitively uh, encounter it. And other times it's a complete nightmare where you have to like find like this one scrap of paper that's hidden underneath a shelf or whatever. And so uh, in that way, I would say it's, it's a very similar process where you're, you're looking to transition people into the mode of life that they were uh, hoping to receive when when they decided to pull the trigger on it. And sometimes you can do that really reliably. And other times, uh, if you don't pay a lot of attention to it, it becomes painfully obvious. And I think that's probably maybe the challenge for some of these on-demand companies that I think so much is probably out of your control. It's a two-sided marketplace, obviously. So how do companies like Uber and Lyft and Airbnb, as you mentioned, how do they design around that? Uh, well, I would say that largely that's the design responsibility is as is as local as the control is. And so, um, you know, if a host wants to get good ratings and get more people to come and have more positive reviews, they can approach it in a conscious and considerate and hospitality oriented way. Um, and if they don't decide to do that, then they will suffer whatever kind of, you know, consequences the marketplace will determine based off of that. And so uh, I, I can imagine that being a concern for Uber or Lyft or Airbnb. But at the same time, uh, what they're creating is a larger system that hopefully has some self-regulation to it. So um, to my mind, the parallel between the two is is more of like, in the, if you can understand what uh, the value of an Airbnb host taking an approach that's really hospitality driven and you can see how the benefits would result in not only to use kind of a gross term like customer satisfaction, but also just on the the bottom line revenue of how well your business is doing. And then, you know, extend that to software. To my mind, those are really kind of a one to one um, comparison to make. Do you think we can learn anything from industries outside software? So I know slot machines and video games are two examples of industries well adapt to user onboarding and retention. Do you think we can learn anything from them? Yeah, I absolutely think so. Um, in both cases, those have been very influential in, in my study of user onboarding and the research that I've done in my own life. In the video games example, they've been around arguably longer, at least in the mainstream, than, than you know, SaaS software has been. And in a lot of ways, the getting started uh, experience is a little bit more mature and articulated in that medium where there are things like first level design and tutorials that are part of games and things like that. And so I've, I've been able to draw from a really rich pool there as far as insights and inspiration and just kind of having years of working to figure out what works and what doesn't. And then, of course, you know, as you mentioned, slot machines or casinos in general, there's an amazing, amazing book by a woman named Natasha Dow Shul called Addiction by Design. And if you look at casino floor layouts and their climate control and the, the lack of clocks and, of course, things like slot machines or, you know, even outside of casinos, things like free-to-play games like Candy Crush or things along those lines, uh, those have really gotten people's brain chemistry figured out and has really turned addiction to a science. And it's... Uh, it's regrettable in, in, in a lot of ways as far as the predatory and kind of Machiavellian practices that they employ. But at the same time, what they're learning can also just as easily be used in service of helping people become successful. And so I would certainly say that ignorance is not something that is to your benefit. So learning the tools that people who maybe have more questionable uh, ethics uh, are using is something that can be helpful so long as you're kind of following your own Hippocratic oath, whatever that may be. 
that's what I always think, it, particularly in terms of casino design. I think there's such a fine line between what we can take inspiration from, what works, and some clearly, obviously, dark patterns. Yeah, I mean, I would say you can take inspiration, or speaking personally for myself, I, I take in, inspiration from all of it. Um, it's just a question of filtering it then through my own sort of litmus test of ethics, which is, do I genuinely believe that this is to someone's betterment or not? And so um, that's that's really the question that I come back to time and time again as a user experience designer, especially looking at how to persuade and motivate people into taking actions and you know getting into um, the field of behavioral economics and things like that. Like If you are really able to have a profound effect on people's behavior and nudge them in one direction or another... Uh, you're going to need to have some kind of guiding principles around that one way or the other. Um, So let's jump back to software for a minute. What sort of differences have you noticed in designing onboarding flows for business app versus um, maybe sort of consumer apps or consumer products? I find that there's a less of a difference between the two than one might think upon going into it. The, the, The biggest difference that I find is the lifetime value of a customer for business software is typically you know, a 10x or more of what the lifetime value of of an individual user for something like Twitter would be. So therefore, when you're looking to create something that's more consumer oriented, you really have to rely on the self-serve experience of the product to be able to carry the day where if, uh, you know, you just won't be able to put the resources of people's time or uh, employee time toward going in and helping, you know, walk people through in some sort of intimate white glove kind of way that you may be able to justify for something that's more um, B2B oriented where if the lifetime value of a customer is $6,000 or $60,000, you can certainly afford to like put an accounts person on that and help walk them through and smooth out whatever rough edges your user experience might have. At the same time, you know, one of the things I like to say is it's great to have a product that people will crawl through broken glass to get to, but it never hurts to get rid of the broken glass. And so in both cases, if you can have a really um, intuitive and immersive and and most of all valuable self-serve experience, that's really something that's not going to hurt the bottom line for either kind of company. And how does that translate to enterprise as well? Would you say the same for that? Enterprises are an interesting beast. I, I've worked in, in that capacity myself, and I tend to find that when the the person making the purchasing decision is further removed from the people who are using the product, the emphasis on user experience tends to suffer. And at the enterprise level, or looking at anything, um, you know, government oriented, or, you know, the, the bigger the organization, and the more bureaucratic red tape that's involved, the more you're going to find that the onboarding quote-unquote experience is more like golf trips and steak dinners and less about self-serve and and having a high-quality experience for the people who are actually using the product. And so that can be regrettable in some ways, but it also seems to be just a fact of the situation. And then there's also this somewhat pernicious element where uh, there are a lot of enterprise companies who offer training for their own product, and that's actually a revenue center for them. So it's almost against their own interest to provide a really compelling product that, that can kind of explain itself and be used in an intuitive way. So enterprise onboarding, especially with its demos and its long sales cycles and things like that, is something that I tend to uh, not focus too much on and tend to focus more on B2B and B2C. So just to clarify that for the second, are you, you kind of talking about the kind of IBM and not kind of sort of Oracle model? where, you know, training is offered a consultancy and becomes a sort of revenue business in itself? 
Yeah, along those lines, or, you know, there are um, the uh, Salesforce, I would imagine. I haven't really looked into that recently, but I would imagine that there's probably some sort of micro economy around there, around just um, providing professional services and things like that. So um, certainly not to throw any any of those companies under the bus. It just seems to be a, a different model than providing something that people can use on their own and find compelling uh, just, you know, with themselves and their computer. That's actually a great follow on to something I wanted to talk to you about, actually. Oh, good. Um, which is that something we're really starting to consider at Intercom is that traditionally sort of when we think about onboarding, we think of kind of one person in front of a computer. But now we're actually having to consider onboarding not just one person, but actually whole groups of people, all with different abilities and sort of different roles to play in that onboarding. So have you sort of noticed any good examples of how to actually onboard groups of people rather than just individuals? Sure, yeah. And I don't think that's a particularly new challenge. Uh, you know, I, I would have to imagine back in like the the Windows 95 days, like getting people to pick up platform on the OS level or decide whether they're going to go with Microsoft Office or not was also a, a group decision that involved a lot of employees and probably people of, of different uh, hierarchies within the company and, you know, uh, people reviewing budgets and things like that. So I think the problem is ultimately the same, which is that, when you're designing B2B especially, you're probably not designing for a single person. And even if you are designing for a single, and when I say single person, I mean a single user, even when you are designing for that, they probably need to make a case to their boss to be able to allocate the budget. They may need to uh, work with the IT department that might want to do some sort of tech review to make sure that it's up to whatever kind of uh, safety standards that they might have internally. They might have to convince their other employees to jump on and, and, and work with them in that product. So there's a lot of, for lack of a better term, political maneuvering that may need to take place. And so I see that as absolutely being a really huge onboarding opportunity where if you can arm that particular person with some really compelling sales material. So when they do go to their boss and, and try to make a case for it being allocated, uh, whatever the budget needs, then you're not just relying on them kind of being able to be the best salesperson they can off the top of their head. You're helping grease the wheels in that regard. Or, you know, there are ways to tee things up for a more successful IT review. Or especially, and I think this is kind of more of where you were going, if you do need to onboard an entire team, then being really attentive to the different startup modes. Uh, when I say startup, I mean starting to use a product, not like the kind of company. Um, but you know, if someone wants to start using a bug tracker or some sort of project management tool like uh, Asana, for example, they would probably go in and sign up and sort of be in what I call homesteader mode, where they're kind of going out into the frontier, trying to set things up for other people to follow. And then what they will most likely do is then invite the rest of their team to come in. And so you really have at least two primary different onboarding experiences. There's the first person who's going in and trying to create an environment for success for everybody else. And then there are the follow on invitation onboarding experiences for people to go in who know substantially less than that first person did and try to make heads or tails of what they're even supposed to be doing, why they were invited, what this product is, what it does, what their role in it is, so on and so forth. So um, I, I think that's absolutely something to pay a lot of attention to. That's really interesting. So I, so I guess in some sense, there's there's kind of like an onboarding champion or onboarding leader, is there? One of the challenges, I guess, is equipping them with enough materials to kind of 
convince or get everyone else on board with the particular piece of software. Yeah, whether those other people are actually directly using the software or not. Um, you look at the the social pressures that someone faces in their in their work life, and also you know one question that I like to walk through as an exercise when I'm consulting with companies is like who does this person care about looking good to, and what does looking good look like, and how can we most reliably demonstrate that you know looking good is taking place for them. So uh, the, that's a it's a people problem just as much as it is a, a software problem for sure. Before we continue with today's guest, I just want to take a quick second to let you know about our amazing archive of podcasts. It's full of insights from thought leaders from the worlds of product management, design, marketing, and a lot more. People like Megan Keeney Anderson. Megan was VP of Marketing for HubSpot for over nine years. She joined us to talk about how marketers should adapt their customer acquisition strategies in the age of the internet. Internet will rise and fall and go through different iterations. And our job as content creators, as marketers, is to really study that and stay close to it and adapt. You can hear Megan's episode and lots more on intercom.com forward slash blog forward slash podcasts. Okay, let's get back to today's interview. Everyone's obviously familiar with your onboarding Teradens for all sorts of products from kind of Basecamp to Ashley Madison. But <laughs> what I really, really love about your particular Teradens is that they always start on the marketing landing pages and not just necessarily on the kind of first few screens after a user signs up. So kind of just even conceptually from a kind of like org structure, where do you see onboarding sitting in a company? Does it kind of sit with marketing or product or... Yeah, it's it's tricky. And I think that's one reason that onboarding can kind of fall through the cracks for a lot of companies. Um, there's and I sort of appropriate this, maybe not in the way it was intended, but there's uh, something called Conway's Law, which the the short version of it is basically that that the thing that a team produces will be organized in a way that reflects the way that the team was organized. And so if there isn't anyone who it kind of quote unquote owns user onboarding, then that will probably be something that's underemphasized in the end result product that's being created. And so if that is something that people find to be really valuable, and I probably a little biased, but I would absolutely say that onboarding is, is an incredibly valuable uh, part of the overall product experience, then having someone um, be in a position to either own that as their full-time responsibility, or at least as a very clear and discreet part of their job description, um, makes a lot of sense to me for sure. And then as you were asking with uh, regard to starting the onboarding review on the homepage or in the marketing material, I really look at that as something of a as a cycle where ultimately if you're onboarding people well, then you're putting them in a position to succeed or to thrive to whatever the, the, the best of their abilities are with your product in their life. And ultimately what you're really hoping to generate are product evangelists who are just getting everything they possibly can out of it and have found su such success that they are preaching your, your name from the mountaintops and telling everyone that they care about like, Hey, your, your life could be so much better if you also used product blank. And, and so, um, a lot of times what I really consider onboarding to be is the the process of getting people from the first time that they've heard that your product could help them all the way to your product actually helping them. And so that might come through word of mouth. Hopefully that's a, I mean, that's a very high ROI um, approach to customer acquisition, but it could come through a radio ad. It could come through Google or Facebook ads. It could come through 
SEO or some sort of search that they landed on. Could be a lot of different things, but as soon as your product pops up on someone's radar and they kind of recognize that internal need that they have where your product could help them do something better, I would say that that's really, in a a fuzzy sense, where onboarding really starts because that's where the seeds of what your product promises are starting to be planted. I often think from some of the teardowns that I've come across that you've written, one of the biggest problems is that you'll often see very kind of inconsistent transitions, I guess, between marketing landing pages and let's say by the time you sign in. So it really seems the challenge for a lot of companies is smoothing those transitions between marketing and growth who might own a a different part of the product and then the product team maybe who own a completely different part of the product. And I think one of the real challenges is actually designing a consistent experience that feels completely seamless throughout that onboarding experience. Yeah, it can it can definitely feel like kind of a multiple personality sort of a situation where going from an advertisement to uh, the homepage to a landing page to a sign up page to the first use of the product to ongoing use of the product and then into like the billing form, for example, you might feel like six or seven different products essentially. And a lot of times if you are going through one of those experiences, and you and you come across a really high contrast transition aesthetically branding wise interface wise whatever that might be um, it's probably a pretty good chance that there were very different personnel involved in creating those two you know high contrast experiences and so um, a lot of times it is like you're actually working with different people as soon as you click the next button and are taken to something that's completely different that way one of my favorite analogies that you've used in your writing is that of tricycles versus training wheels where it's actually possible to actually cripple your product really by making it so easy to use. Could you explain that a little more? Sure. And I can't take credit for that particular metaphor. Um, That was introduced to me by Kathy Sierra. I'm not sure if she came up with it herself or not, but um, definitely it wasn't me. But I do find it really applicable as well, where the the idea is that um, if you were to just hand someone a bike, then they wouldn't immediately be able to to take it on and use it to, you know, the best of their abilities. There's some training that needs to to take place there. And training wheels can be really helpful. But one of the best parts about training wheels is that you can also get rid of them when they're no longer relevant. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case with a tricycle where it is easy to get started right away. But if you're only focused on making like the Fisher Price, my first whatever version of your product, then people are probably going to get bored with it relatively quickly because although it was easy to take on, it um, is pretty limited in what you can do beyond that. And so in the same way, like picking up a guitar or a violin versus like playing Guitar Hero, one is a lot more accessible, but, um, you know, accessible doesn't always mean that you're going to have really long-term retention by really helping people succeed in a way that's uh, markedly different from how they're already approaching things. It's funny you mentioned Kathy Sierra, actually, because some of your writing always reminds me of her mantra of kind of making users awesome. Oh, yeah. She has been incredibly influential in, on my career and just my uh, my mindset as a designer. I would unhesitatingly recommend anyone listening to look into um, pretty much any of the work that she has put out. So we've seen products maybe like Quartz and Slack, two probably of the most impressive teardowns that I've seen recently, where the product is actually its own onboarding. So you're able to learn without feeling really like you're being taught. So I'm thinking um, for Slackbot, for example. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on onboarding users using these kinds of in-app messaging and using sort of bots to do so? Well, I I would tease apart that question a little bit. Um, I I would see the messaging and the bots being one element of it. But what I really find to be the hallmark of quality design and onboarding in particular is 
uh, well, let me let me rephrase. W- when I find that the the quality of the onboarding experience tends to be maybe not very well considered or thought out, a lot of times it's really clear that there's kind of the core use of the product, and then completely separate from that, there's another interface that's been like slapped on after the fact. Um, that a lot of times is like pointing out areas where the uh, the product team realizes that the product might not be super intuitive or or very obvious in in how it's guiding people to do the important things that people need to do. And so uh, what I find to be one of the biggest hallmarks, if not like the hallmark of quality onboarding, is to blur the lines between the core use of your product and the introduction of your product to the point where people can't really differentiate between the two. Everything feels like one cohesive experience. And so in the same way, I use this metaphor where it is, of course, important to design for your core use in the same way, like if you were designing a plane, the primary use of it would be to fly. But at the same time, if you're only designing it for that, then you wouldn't include a door because you don't need doors to to fly and you wouldn't include wheels because you don't need wheels to fly. But if you have a plane that you can't get into and can't get off the ground, then it's basically as valuable as no plane at all. And so the idea of uh, developing the entire experience from the beginning and, and starting your designing where your users start their using and going forward from there is really, really crucial to me. If you can't get people through the first five minutes of your product, it really doesn't matter all the other amazing features that you might be working on because for the people who aren't making it there, they basically don't even exist. And so um, that's really what I look for for high quality onboarding and high quality product design in general. Beyond that, as far as your question regarding bots or messages, um, that's something where, you know, through intercom, if you have a, a human being who's there and conversing with people can be a really rich source of insights and help provide that just in time assistance that someone might need. And if you can automate that with a bot or whatever that might be, then I think that's wonderful. But at the same time, when I look at uh, conversational UIs, I see them as being much more valuable from a learning standpoint for the company than necessarily uh, for the, the user base themselves who are experiencing it. And hopefully what you're doing when you are having these conversations is picking up on patterns and pain points in your product and where things might be falling short and then turning those insights into actual product changes that uh, everyone can experience at scale from there on out. So um, that's, that's my general thinking on that. Things like your teardowns and other sorts of unsolicited sort of redesigns have played such a big, big part in design criticism over the past 10 years. Have you found your feedback that you've given to to companies being incorporated into some of the products that you've seen? Or have you had any pushback from other companies over things you might have mentioned in in your teardowns? Uh, Yeah, well... um in answering your question, I, I am going to kind of push back a little bit on, on how it was set up. Um, I totally hear where you're coming from regarding kind of lumping teardowns and unsolicited redesigns together. Uh, at the same time, as a designer, it does make me wince a little bit because uh, I, I tend to find unsolicited redesigns as being um, really not contributing a lot to the conversation, actually, because they aren't aware of the constraints that the original team was working under. They're probably not doing a lot of really targeted user research and generating a lot of insights based off of what the the user base is really, you know, looking to have help with solving their problems with and things along those lines. So um, when someone comes along and like, you know, come, comes up with like a prettier boarding ticket, uh, for an airplane or something, those those tend to not um, really rock my world that much. And I try to be really mindful of that when I'm creating the teardowns where I'm um, not going in and just saying, no, 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 this doesn't, you know, I don't agree with this or my opinion is better or things along those lines. It's much more of saying, um, 
according to my own experience, anecdotally going through it as a user, I encountered some areas that might be confusing or generate anxiety, uh, or according to industry best practices, there's something to consider here. Um, but anytime I'm pointing out the quote unquote bad, I, I really try to do so with the, um, sort of unspoken caveat that I'm someone who's going through this product on my own. I'm not aware of what kind of conversion metrics they're they're working with, where people are being lost the most or not, what's most relevant to the people who are the core user base to begin with, um, and try to keep things kind of light and respectful in that way. So just as a general, as a general kind of note there, um, as far as actually receiving pushback from the companies that I've actually uh, worked with, I uh, anticipated that to, to a degree when I first started. I picked a company kind of out of a hat called less accounting because they uh, I hadn't used their product before I just wanted to kind of go through one where I hadn't worked with them in any kind of professional way I hadn't been using it as a, as a user myself and uh, you know put out the first teardown posted it to slideshow and, and didn't really think a lot of it and the next morning I woke up and I received an email from one of the founders it was sitting in my inbox and I was like oh no this is there I was really pretty sure that when I opened it they were gonna be like hey thanks a lot for passing this by us and uh, by the way, you'll be hearing from our lawyers and consider this a cease and desist or something. And I, I very trepidatiously opened the email and it couldn't have been more opposite of that, where they said, hey, thank you so much for making this. Uh, we've already made some of the changes that you recommended, like this morning. Uh, it looks like you're writing a book. How can we help promote it? And they wound up featuring it on their blog and everything. And so that was the very first one I did. And, and because of um, Alan at, at Less Accounting and, and the, the general reception there, it was um, something where I was like, okay, I should probably do more of these. And, and to be 100% truthful, I, I figured at some point, um, I would get some sort of negative response from the companies that I've featured on the site. And, and to this day, I haven't gotten a single one. So um, it's actually led to some really positive relationships. And, and I'm really, really thankful for that. That's great. Thank you so, so, so much for your time. Absolutely. Likewise. Yeah, I'm really excited to be to be featured here. Bye. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.